Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. One year ago this week, the first case of coronavirus was confirmed in the United States. In the 12 months since, COVID-19 has devastated communities and economies across the country and fundamentally altered our lives. Progress is being made on the vaccine front, and there's a glimmering light at the end of the tunnel. But without a doubt, this past year has been so difficult for our collective mental health. With more Americans stuck at home, boundaries around conventional eating and drinking habits have bent, buckled, and broken. Triggered by pandemic fears and anxieties, depression rates have spiked and substance abuse is on the rise. On this week's show, we've gathered together health experts and advocates to examine cravings, addiction, and mental health, both at home and in the food and beverage industry. We begin with Harvard Medical School psychologist, Dr. Ronald Siegel. A longtime student of mindfulness meditation, he explains the psychology of happiness and why humans use food and drink as a pathway to achieve it. Then, Will Arendelle, a renowned substance abuse counselor, demystifies the psychology and physiology behind addiction. Before journalist Kat Kinsman joins us for a frank and honest conversation about anxiety and depression. We've got some sobering insights ahead on this week's Louisiana Eats. Browse the self-help section in any bookstore, and you'll find shelves of books filled with tips for finding happiness. Dr. Ronald Siegel teaches psychology at Harvard Medical School, and he suggests that the odds of finding that happiness are stacked against us. After all, humans have evolved to survive, not to be happy. The same can be said of food and drink. What started as a means of survival is now complicated by emotional issues like anxiety and depression. When we spoke with Dr. Siegel in 2018, he discussed his research and what he calls the mindfulness solution. Well, let me start by talking about why it's difficult for so many of us to be content. And it really goes back to our evolutionary history. And I want you to imagine one of our ancestors, say Lucy, she's the skeleton of somebody who's found uh, from about three and a half or four and a half million years ago. She was about three foot high, and she was hanging out on the African savanna. And we know that she survived because we've got her DNA. She is our shared great, 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 et cetera, grandmother. How did she possibly survive? Well, she had a few things going for her, and the things she had going for her are exactly the same things that unfortunately make life difficult for us today. 
one of the things she had was this ability to think, right? To analyze the past, remember the past, and project it into the future so she could strategize what to do, how to solve problems, and humans think all day long. The problem is our capacity to think isn't just this neutral computer, but we have what cognitive scientists call a very strong negativity bias. My friend Rick Hansen has written about this, says, our minds are like Velcro for bad experiences and Teflon for good ones. Bad things happen to us and they stick in our mind. Good things happen, they slide right off the pan. The reason for this makes a lot of sense. If you could imagine Lucy staring at some beige shape behind some bushes out there in the African savanna, she could make one of two types of errors. The first error, type one error we can call it, would be to say, oh my God, it's a lion, when it's really just a beige rock. Type two error would be to say, ah, it's a beige rock, when it's really a lion. Now she could survive thousands of type one errors and still survive, pass on her genes, thrive. One type two error, mistake a lion for a rock, that's the end. So our so <laughs> Goodbye, Lucy. Good, exactly. And goodbye us. <laughs> yeah. So we may imagine that there may have been some, you know, happy hominids hanging out in Lucy's day, remembering all the good stuff, expecting good things to happen, holding hands and singing kumbaya. But they weren't our ancestors because statistically they died before they got to reproduce. Our ancestors were the ones who were always anticipating what could go wrong, what I could miss out on what might not go well. And this negativity bias really sets us up for a lot of suffering. What we find is when the mind isn't involved in either goal-oriented planning or taking care of some kind of business, we just tend to daydream a lot, mostly about ourselves. And we mostly daydream about what we want, whether we'll get what we want, how to get what we want. Or if, if we have a family, we daydream about the well-being of our families and the like. And any bad things that have happened, any traumas, any upsetting events, they tend to gurgle up during this, this daydreaming. So our normal state of mind, if we're not distracted by some kind of entertainment, is to think a lot. And a lot of those thoughts are not happy thoughts. In our Declaration of Independence, we have the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it's interesting, why do we have to pursue it like some kind of fugitive? Well, this is why. It's because we're actually hardwired to survive, but not to be so happy. We're not really hardwired for well-being. We're hardwired for survival. And this is going to lead us to pathways to happiness, including why we use food and drink for happiness. From your point of view... Where do those factors of the eating and the drinking come in? You know, some people say that they drink exclusively for the taste, but we probably wouldn't be drinking it if it didn't also have an intoxicating, a, an intoxicating effect. effect, right? So what draws us to intoxication? And this is, this is interesting. One of the things that draws us to intoxication is, well, it helps cut the anxiety of the fight-or-flight response. A lot of us feel more tense or more anxious than we'd like to, just living a normal life. And when we have a drink or wine or beer, we tend to relax a little bit. And that's really just reversing this fight or flight response, which for us as humans is activated all day long with all sorts of symbolic threats like, oh, what will people think of me? Or, or will I lose money? Or, or things like that. Or did I do a good job on this or didn't I? All these worries all result in a bit of tension. And alcohol tends to loosen that a bit. Um, and in moderation, that seems not to be a problem for people. Something else alcohol does for us is it tends to take us out of our thought stream a little bit. 
Now, it is possible, of course, to drink a lot and get stuck in some kind of repetitive thought. You know, people talk about that as a sort of bad drunk state. Mm -hmm. But for many of us, it kind of takes us out of the things that we're worrying about, thinking about all day. And we kind of even know that when we've had a couple of drinks, it's not a good time to make big plans, yeah. you know? So we sort big of... Decisions. Yeah, so we sort of put that aside. So, so we step out of the thought stream and we tend to come more into whatever is going on, you know, you know the, the colors around us, the tastes of food, the talking with other people. Another thing that it does, which, and you can see all of these are sort of helping with Lucy's problem, if you will, is it helps us to connect to others. A lot of times what makes it hard for people to be really comfortable with other people is there's a little bit of social anxiety, a little bit of worries. What will this person think of me? How am I doing? What's the meaning of the relationship to them? That kind of thing. Or sometimes it's our judgments. And all of that makes it hard to connect. And when people drink a little bit, they sort of soften their judgments. They can actually feel connected. And there are a lot of people who feel, get to feel connected, get to feel part of the primate group, if you will, when they've had some drinks. And that too in moderation is probably okay, but all of these things, if we do it to excess, become problematic for us. And if every time you have some anxiety you need to drink, well, you're not gonna learn how to manage that anxiety in other ways, because it's actually okay to feel anxious sometimes and do what you need to do, um, even though you're feeling anxious. And that's an important skill to have. So both food and drink, can kind of help us if we use them the right way and in moderation, or they can really get in the way of pathways to happiness. You, you know that expression, fake it until you make it? Mm -hmm. I find that if you force yourself to smile, sometimes just the sensation of your face smiling will make you be that way a little more. Do you, that, is, do you that, think that's true? That's been measured. That's actu that actually is true. It doesn't always work, but it can work sometimes. And those of you who are listening to this can give it a try. Just right now, you know, just, just kind of put your face in like a half smile. doesn't have to be a broad smile. And see what you feel inside. And you'll probably notice... That there's a little you bit of smiling feeling. Yeah, yeah, feel a little bit better. The limitation to that is one of the other things we know about happiness is people are happiest actually who let themselves feel all of their feelings, who can let themselves feel sad when something sad happens, who can let themselves feel angry when something annoying happens or injustice happens, can let themselves feel frightened when something frightening happens, and can connect with other people around this. In other words, aren't afraid to admit it. Let themselves be a little bit vulnerable with, you know, where appropriate, you know, with uh, good friends or family. Um, they're not always in a up mood, but they feel much better about living their lives. Things feel meaningful. They feel connected to one another, um, and they're they're happier in a in a deeper way. I'm fascinated by how you term this. The, the phrase fourth drive. It's pretty universal. That, uh, and in fact, it does seem that, that other species of animals are actually drawn to uh, plants and things that either make them relax or uh, in some way have an intoxicating effect. It seems to me that what, what draws people to intoxication, though, most broadly, is it's hard to be a human being. 
we're hardwired for survival in ways that in the modern world make for a lot of difficult feelings uh, coming up. And we don't all talk about this freely because part of what gets us hooked in terms of self-esteem and our sort of social ranking is we think, oh, well, that person's happy and successful, so they're doing better than I am because I'm anxious or I'm sad or I'm lonely or I'm conflicted about how my marriage is going or, or I'm worried about my kids. Uh, so people don't advertise that much um, that it's hard to be a human being. And yet it is hard to be a human being. And so it's not a surprise that humans figured out how to lighten the load with intoxicants from very early on. And, and this would be that, that other drive. It's, it's really the drive to soothe, to comfort, uh, to feel better through substances, which people do do, which works out okay in moderation, but not so well uh, in, in, excess. In, in excess. I can't tell you what an incredible pleasure and an honor it was to have this opportunity to talk with you, Dr. Siegel. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Ronald Siegel, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Harvard Medical School, speaking with us in 2018. Coming up next, substance abuse counselor Will Arendelle demystifies the psychology and physiology of addiction. But first, what is a simple, healthy way to de-stress? Stay tuned, and we'll share some age-old insights with you when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Crystal Hot Sauce, sponsor of our new Cooking with Poppy series. Since this year we're having a COVID carnival, on Saturday, February 6th, I'm hosting our first online cooking class to get you all ready to revel in place for Mardi Gras 2021. Cocktails, Creole food, and of course, king cake. I'll show you how. To learn more and reserve your spot, visit poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. This week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is a simple, healthy way to de-stress? One answer lies in something so simple. Water. Hydrotherapy, or the water cure, is something the Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans all practiced. Beginning in the 19th century, hydrotherapy was used to treat mental illness. 
Before World War II, it was utilized as a treatment for alcoholism, something AA founder Bill Wilson experienced personally. Spa tourism flourished in the 19th century with hydrotherapy as key. That's when those artesian waters of St. Tammany Parish first attracted tourists to the North Shore. Water works both on and in your body. A hydrated brain is a functional brain. Drinking water cushions your brain, spinal cord, and other sensitive tissues and lubricates your joints, too. So do your best to consume the recommended eight, eight-ounce glasses of water a day. And when that day has been just too much for you, soak in a long, hot bath and see how that makes things all better. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Since we began broadcasting Louisiana Eats 10 years ago, we've noticed a recurring theme when speaking with chefs, bartenders, and restaurant owners about a certain aspect of this service industry culture. They want to satisfy that customer, so they drink. They think that's going to cover up their tiredness, you know. They will do stupid I mean, talk about Coke. Everyone in there was ripping lines all over the place. I mean, it was just a... It was hard to contain. It was. Yeah, they would get off work. Hey, I just worked a 12-hour day. Let's do a line of heroin and go out and drink some beers after work. No big deal, right? You know, I had a chef who used to bring his bottle of vodka every day to work. Oh, my God, old Nate Burton could drink cut a sock under the table. And it's awful. We used to say it as simply as, you know, the owners are putting the profits up their nose. It is rampant, and it's not one or two drugs. There are a couple that are more prevalent, right? I see people getting stuck in the bar industry because they drink too much. They become alcoholics. But they do Um, that, and they think that that's going to make their work easier. So all that, destroying their own body, trying to serve somebody else. They want to serve people, and that's why they do stupid things sometimes. (laughs) Well, that was pretty sobering, wasn't it? The truth is, from the front of the house to the back, across Louisiana and the entire country, alcohol and substance abuse has long been an issue in restaurants and bars. Workers in the hospitality and service industry have been hit particularly hard by this pandemic as restaurants and bars operate under severe restrictions or shut down altogether. Research has shown that unemployment increases the risk of substance abuse disorder, as well as relapse following treatment. In December, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that the U.S. has seen a significant increase in fatal drug overdoses, with the number of deaths accelerating due to COVID-19. To help us better understand the roots of addiction, we turn now to an expert, Substance Abuse Specialist Will Arendelle. When we spoke with Will in 2015, he broke down for us the psychology and physiology of addiction. Will, one of the things that I learned that really startled me is that apparently there is a 
heroin problem in restaurants in Louisiana, in the front of the house and in the back of the house in restaurants. What do you know about that? Well, actually, I worked in restaurants during my undergrad, and I actually saw this firsthand. I saw heroin use in the restaurant. Um, My first experience with it was walking down, and then we had a room where people changed clothes to get ready for work, and someone dropped a needle out of their bag. Plus, I've treated many, many people who work in the restaurant industry who were opiate drug users and heroin users. It's my understanding that heroin use through injection is not necessarily the most prevalent way that's being used today. Mm -hmm. And also, I always thought that it sort of was an opiate that like slowed you down into like some sort of slow motion, which certainly isn't something that works in the restaurant industry. So can you help me understand where my misunderstandings lie? Actually, it's a really excellent question. And there's a couple of things that go on there. One, is that when someone gets addicted to a drug, they don't have the same reaction to the drug that other people do. A lot of times it's an ab reaction or a paradoxical reaction. And so what happens is, is the opiates will give them energy until they use a certain amount of it. So you'll talk to opiate addicts who you know, are pill users and they'll say, I want, I'm gonna oxyclean the house. And what they mean is I'm gonna take 15 oxycontin, I'm gonna get them to clean the house. The rest of us would be on the couch drooling for two days. Yeah. And so they have a different reaction. The other thing is that it's really a misnomer that an IV drug user will always shoot up in the arm. They can shoot up between their toes. They can shoot up in their neck. Even if someone is shooting up or using, you won't necessarily see it. What is interesting is that the statistics are 1 in 12 people sometimes. It's as high as 1 in 12 people report using illegal drugs. 1 in 50 report using Class A drugs, which would be heroin or cocaine. That's, you know... Those statistics across the United States and across the Western world can be as high as that. So why is heroin so addictive, and and why is it more dangerous than other drugs? I don't know that it's more dangerous than other drugs. What the person tends to get addicted to really has to do with what goes on in their brain. And there's certain deficiencies that can occur around a place called the nucleus accumbens. And depending on where that deficiency is, so in other words, if it's between the ventegmental area and the nucleus accumbens, then that connection, that person would like cocaine. Mm-hmm. If it's on the return trip back, because it makes a little circle, if it's on the return trip back, they might like opiates. If it's in another place, then they might like benzodiazepines such as Xanax. Prescription drugs are actually the most abused drugs. Mm-hmm. And where most people start is getting them out of the medicine cabinet. Right now, I've seen more and more and more high schoolers who are stealing mommy and daddy's oxycodone. And that's one of the reasons that the increase in opiates starts to happen. The other is that over the last 10 years, we've seen an increase in the availability of opiates coming into the United States. What is it about hospitality workers, people who work in restaurants and bars and that sort of thing, what makes them especially at risk for addiction? Well, I don't know that they're especially at risk to addiction as much as people who are prone to addiction are prone to go into the hospitality industry. Oh, I've talked with a lot of chefs and restaurateurs about this problem, and it would seem to me that one way to handle it might be through drug testing. Yet every time I ask someone about it, I get the exact same answer. They look at me and they say, 
If we had drug testing, we wouldn't have any employees. I, I think it, it's not the drug testing. It's what you do with it and the atmosphere you create around it. Let's go into, I know what's going to happen when we talk about intravenous drug use, right? And the public is going to flip out because this presents a danger to the public. And it actually doesn't. Um, I actually, in preparation for this interview, talked to two infectious disease doctors and did a little research into this. And if, if safe food handling is practice, that the HIV and hep C rates, which are actually pretty high in intravenous drug users, present no danger to the public. And then you also talked about the fact that a lot of the opiate users aren't using drugs that way. So what you do is you take that drug test and you start to intervene with that person and say, okay, this is not the kind of environment that I want in my restaurant. What can I do to help you? And there's a misnomer out there that a lot of people need to go to a 30-day or 60-day residential treatment center. And actually, the statistics are that intensive outpatient really is as effective a treatment as residential treatment. Someone can still keep their job when they're in outpatient, uh, intensive outpatient treatment. And even though it's, it's a lot of work, they still have enough hours left to work. And I've worked with people in intensive outpatient who were still working at their jobs. And the biggest thing is most people who are using don't really think there's help for them. And there, there really is. So I, I really recommend, in short, a process where you engage the person and start the dialogue, a very open kind of dialogue, very non-judgmental kind of dialogue, where it's based on their work performance. Then you start putting together where their work performance and their drugs come together. And it, once you start talking with them, it should be fairly easy to see. I think one of the things that's important to understand, too, when you're trying to get somebody to go into treatment is what are the changes that occur in the brain? How do these guys who and girls who suffer from addiction think? Possessing the addiction, the addiction is just a symptom of what they're feeling inside. And most addicts will suffer from what I refer to as the profound and debilitating feeling of being alone. They feel separated from everybody. And it's, that's, a, that's a terrible way to live. And they've probably felt separated since they were a child. Uh, because most addiction, unfortunately, is genetic. And we've got a lot of good evidence of that. They feel they have a constant feeling of everybody's having fun and I'm not. They kind of feel alone in a crowded room. And the drug starts to solve that. The other thing they have going on is black and white thinking. It's either all or it's nothing. So once you say to them, hey, maybe you should go to treatment, they think, my life is over. And you've just got to sit and be with them and talk to them and work them through it. And it, sometimes it really doesn't take any real special therapeutic skill if you're a good listener and you do more listening than talking. The second is that I'm different. And when you've spent a lot of time being alone, then what other people do doesn't apply to you. And so one of the ways you can look at addiction is almost like a different kind of learning disorder where they can't learn from their own behavior and they can't learn vicariously from other people's behavior. That's why they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And this brings us to another thing. is that They have an amazing ability to trust their own thinking. When we work with them, this is one of the things we, we start to target. When you don't have an addiction, you have an inherent distrust of some of the things you think and do. We all think crazy thoughts. What happens with addicts is they make a plan and they decide how that's going to work. They don't put any evidence into it, and then they just go to it. Then when that plan doesn't work, they'll probably try the same thing with a completely different rationale. So this is where you get the, uh, if I only use opiates in the morning and not at night, I'm good. 
oh, if I only use them after my shift, I'm good. If I only use them and maybe if I eat before, I'm good. And so when you're putting somebody in, in treatment, what you're trying to do is, I mean, you want them to stop using and you want them to be safe, but you really want to treat these underlying issues, especially the alone. That's why things like 12-step groups work is because that's a connection with other people that's important. When you're trying to deal with this problem, that important thing of connecting with somebody and having that connection with you as the employer is the important piece that's going to get them sober. That connection is the key. If they start to trust you, you can help them. And what I really like about this work is, you know, when people get better, it's really dramatic. And it's important to understand that people do get better. What is a hyperpalatable? Coming up next, Will Arendelle explains that taste phenomenon and shares more of his insight about substance abuse and recovery. Louisiana Eats returns after a break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. now to our 2015 conversation with renowned substance abuse counselor, Will Arendelle, as he shares a realistic look at addiction recovery. Another thing about addiction that I'm particularly curious about mm-hmm. is um, the way that addicts who have gotten clean will substitute caffeine, tobacco, sugar. So what about these cravings for things that are legal, and how do you view that? So there's a type of food out there called hyperpalatables. And hyperpalatables are things like Doritos and fat-sugar combinations. And what happens when we normally eat is we eat a food for a while, and we get a dopamine rush, the same kind of dopamine rush that an addict may get. 
except theirs is a little different. But we kind of experience that. And in Louisiana, we all experience this at the beginning of crawfish season. Like there's the big <laughs> crawfish boil, and there we are, and we're eating it up. And then, you know, by the 15th crawfish boil, you're like, yeah, it's cool, I'll have a couple. <laughs> and that's because the dopamine rush from the crawfish has fallen. And what that does for us is that makes us go on to get another food. And that keeps variation on our diet, which is really important. Hyperpalatables are foods where the dopamine level stays level the entire time. And actually eating these hyperpalatables has been shown to blunt the reward system, just like the use of drugs has. And that's what I call a low-brain hijacking, where the low-brain, the part that the addiction is in, which is more of our base emotions and automatic responses, is telling us to do something. And our frontal lobes are relegated to like an announcer at a football game. You're telling yourself to put down the ice cream, and you're not putting it down. And so these foods can sometimes be problematic with addicts and, and caffeine and such. What I find is that they can stay sober while eating these foods, but it will tend to jump up. And I, I see it in my, my clients who, you know, they stop smoking and all of a sudden eat, 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 eat. And that's because the addiction has gone somewhere else. And a lot of times, it'll, what, what we don't talk about in the United States a lot is that it'll also move to sexual behavior, mm. you know, because that's part of that continuum as well. And I don't think people necessarily need to abstain from the hyperpalatables, but they do have to be aware of it. We do know that when people with an addiction cut down on coffee and they cut down on cigarettes, their chances of long-term sobriety do increase. If a listener is addicted or knows someone who is, what should they do? Well, the first thing they should do is probably just start talking to that person. Um, just start to open up. And I realize for some of our listeners who are maybe um, have a parent or married to these people, um, this can be a really hard discussion to start to have. But it's just to start to open up the discussion, um, understanding that when you open up discussion, you're going to get some pullback. As I tell a lot of my married couples, don't ever expect to solve anything in one conversation. It takes a series of conversations. One of the things about addiction that's very fascinating is the way we encode memory. One kind of memory is called an unconsolidated memory, another is consolidated memory. A consolidated memory is something you remember from a couple weeks ago. It's lunch. You barely remember it happened. Another one's an unconsolidated memory. And those are memories where we remember a lot of detail from, and they have a logical timestamp, but no emotional timestamp, which means you know it was five years ago, feels like it was two months ago, feels like it was yesterday. And so when an addict, and these non-consolidated memories can be positive or negative, they can be, you know, filled with joy, or they can be filled with hurt, but they're usually not mixed. And what I find with addicts is that when they... Go, let's say they go to the bar and they have a really good time. That'll be encoded as a non-consolidated positive memory. It has a lot of joy for them because that alcohol is fixing that ability for them to connect. And so they're connecting with others. And this is a unique experience for them or semi-unique experience for them. And so they encode that as a non-consolidated positive memory. And then there are the non-consolidated negative memories. And these usually won't be the same memory. So what happens is, is... They leave the bar, they get pulled over, and they end up in jail. For a non-addict, this is one memory. Start to finish, it's all negative. For the addict, it's probably going to be two. Mm. And that's why they really have a hard time remembering their consequences is because 
when they go to pull up that use of the drug, they pull up only the good parts. Mm. And they have to consciously go back and pull up the bad parts because part of their brain wants to get loaded, so they won't do that. And for the rest of us, it will pull up a singular memory that's all one, and we'll go, oh, no, that's, that's bad. And so you can see how you would need a coach to kind of help you deal with somebody who has an addiction. Um, patience and compassion are their key. I have a phrase I like. It's called compassionate boundaries. And that's that, you know, you have to hold the line on what you expect from this person, but you have to do it with love and with kindness. Um, getting angry with them often doesn't work. And, you know, these, I see these interventions, which sometimes work, and I, I don't have anything against them. But I often find that it's a series of discussions, a series of interactions that really causes the change. If you think about what I said about a person who trusts their own thinking implicitly and trying to deal with that person despite what reality may be telling that person, you're going to need a coach to do that a lot of times. Um, If you don't have a coach, I really suggest doing it and trying the best you can. But try and learn from what their actions are teaching you. Addiction specialist Will Arendelle speaking to us in 2015. While there are many people in the hospitality industry who are working to destigmatize mental health issues, few have shared as openly and as vulnerably as Kat Kinsman. In 2014, Kat wrote a blog for CNN about her own lifelong struggle with anxiety. The reception to the piece was so positive that she eventually expanded the blog into a book called High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves. After Kat lost her friend and associate, Anthony Bourdain, to suicide in 2018, she began traveling the country, working to create safe spaces and help the industry build networks of support. When we spoke with Kat that July, she emphasized the degree to which social media plays a role in our misconceptions about mental health. I think we're living in a world where people are putting out these avatars of success that aren't necessarily true. Yes, you see somebody's life and they're traveling all over the world and they're, you know, in these far-flung places. They're eating these fabulous things. They're wearing these fabulous clothes. That isn't necessarily reality. That's what they they want you to see. Um, They could be going back to, you know, their their bed, their, you know, their hotel, their wherever it is they happen to be and feeling super crappy and maybe putting that picture out with something they needed to do to convince themselves that they were okay. You might be looking around and comparing your life to everybody else's thinking, why are they so happy and I'm not? Why are they this and, and I'm not? You don't know that they are necessarily. Everybody's just trying their best. Everybody has a bad day. Everybody has a bad week. It's a harder struggle for some people um, than others just because of stupid brain chemistry. 
Um, you know, I'm a pretty public person and, you know, I've been lucky enough to have a, you know, a career I really like and, um, you know, be a p pretty public person. People wouldn't necessarily guess unless I told them I can't always leave my house. That is really hard sometimes when I, you know, get down into a pit and I have such a bad panic attack. You know, I'm, I'm trying to put on my makeup and trying to make myself presentable and my hands keep fumbling. I drop things and it's really hard for me to actually like physically leave my house. You just have to remember that everybody struggles no matter what they happen to look like and project in, in public. Everybody has their moments. It's incredible how prevalent this is in the hospitality industry. It is and it isn't. Um, I've, what I've found, people always ask, why why this industry more than others? You know, they say like, hey, there are a lot of other high stress uh, professions. There's doctors, lawyers, athletes, all all of these things. And they have, you know, this, you know huge pressures and all of this. They also have money and resources in a way that people who work in restaurants don't necessarily. What they do have is easy access to cheap, quick solutions. Um, there's always something around and um, there's not a, a taboo around it. Like, of course, you're going to have, you know, that extra shift drink. Of course, you're going to go out um, while you're still revved up after work um, because everybody else is doing it as well. Um, you know, it's 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 right there on premises. Um, the other thing is, I always say it's a chicken and egg kind of thing because uh, a lot of people who maybe have these particular issues are drawn to restaurant work um, for some really great reasons. It's where they find the family and community that they don't otherwise have um, because, you know, they don't necessarily fit into a traditional, uh, you know, nine to five job. And they find their people working in restaurants and some of the best people in the world uh, work in restaurants. Um, I've talked to people who have OCD and things like that. And the, the order of the kitchen works out really, really well for them. Um, you can go and, and uh, forget yourself in the rhythm of the kitchen sometimes, too, if you were part of this machine that is finely tuned and you're acting as one organism, you can maybe push things out of your head uh, for a little bit and just be part of this amazing brigade that is pushing out this incredible food. It's just a matter of what happens when, when that breaks down. And uh, that's where the problems come in. And what happens? What have you seen? I guess the worst thing we see in the industry is suicide. Frankly, I've seen a lot of death. Um, it's uh, seen a lot of death and breakdown, and nobody was talking about it before this. Um, a month after I started Chefs with Issues, which was in January of 2016, um, in February, I heard of three different uh, chef owner suicides. Um, I started doing the math that if that is the shortest month of the year, and I knew about three different ones, and that's the tip of the iceberg, how many others were there that we don't hear about? Some, a line cook overdosing or somebody um, succumbing to what I call a slow suicide, where they've mm -hmm. been using substances for a really long time and eventually they have a single car accident or their heart gives out or they mouth off at the wrong bar. People were dying all of the time and people, and it just gets swept under the rug um, for all different kinds of, of reasons. Sometimes it might be considering the family, insurance, taboo. People don't want to necessarily think, hey, that person parties just like me. And oh my God, they don't necessarily want to think about it. And um, suddenly... We couldn't ignore it anymore. Anthony Bourdain killed himself. And uh, that really sent a wake-up call to the industry in a very big way because he is the he was the epitome of the line cook made good 
in his heart, I truly believe that he he was the person everybody wanted to know or to be. He was grateful for everything that he got. He didn't think of himself as above anyone else. He, uh, you know, he treated people with respect and care. And you could always tell that he felt lucky and grateful to have everything that he did. And he had access and respect and money and opportunity. And it's been so heartbreaking for so many of us, and especially so many people who entered the profession because of him, because they think if that's a person who seemingly, you never know, who seemingly had it all and still wanted to end his life, then what the hell kind of chance do I have? I think that's very surprising to people because you expect somebody down on their luck, someone that life has mistreated it seemingly unfairly. But when somebody's really at the top of their game, suicide isn't an option that you expect. A lot of us have bad brains. And that's I, I say this to so Many people, because I suffer from this myself, our brains lie to us constantly about our worth. Um, so much of these uh, mental conditions are are, are are chemical in our brain. It's a lot of you know thought patterns that we have learned throughout our lives. But some of us have brain chemistry that uh, needs to be regulated. However, it you know it happens to be, or we have to figure out some ways to compensate for it. And if you're a person with a wonky brain. Like I am like I, you know, and I don't presume anybody else's um, situation, but you can have achieved. I was talking about with this with a friend earlier today who was telling me that they were feeling the second that they stopped producing work, even for a minute, that they felt like, ah, what good am I? I know that conversation so well. My brain does that um, where I have this balance sheet and I think I haven't produced anything today. What good am I? But also you don't have to justify your existence. But I think if you're – I mean, again, I can't presume to know. But if you're in a position where you have all of these things, the expectations are so incredibly high and you have a lot of people depending on you. And um, I think we need to talk about hotel rooms um, because so many of these things happen in hotel rooms while people are on – while they're traveling, while they're isolated, it can seem like the most glamorous thing in the world. Like, hey, I'm in a hotel room in, you know, whatever city or country or whatever it is happens to be. Well, if you're there alone, it yeah. can be the loneliest thing in in the world. You know, I've been traveling since Tony's death. I've uh, been traveling a lot around the country, getting together in rooms with uh, people in the hospitality industry, close the door, tell everybody to put their phones away, um, no press. And we're just going to talk about uh, what is going on. And that is, I've seen some incredibly powerful things come out of that. I've seen people feel like they're no longer isolated, that they're like, wait, I thought I was the only one. Um, I've seen movement come out of it. I've seen some really special things happen out of it. But I have that conversation and then I go back to my hotel room by myself and my brain is buzzing and stuff. And it can get kind of scary in your own brain sometimes. You know, I am so extraordinarily lucky that I have a really great support system and therapists and people a text away. And I run a Facebook group for chefs um, that I know I could just put out a message there and people would listen. But if you don't necessarily have that, and if you're in a bad state and that little flicker of light doesn't go on, um, you know, a life can be lost. I think that's probably the most important thing everybody needs to know is that 
none of us are truly alone. And it's an act of generosity to people to, you know, to let them see you not at, at your best. Because I think there are so many of us, I think a lot of people have this impulse, and especially people in hospitality, that you have to take care of everybody else. Letting somebody else take care of you is the, that gift of vulnerability is actually that's pretty important. Well, you did the most incredibly generous thing by being brave enough to write high anxiety <laughs> so that you gave us a glimpse of your life and shared your struggles. And thank you for that because I think it makes it easier for everyone. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate anyone who wants to read or listen to it. Y'all are seeing my heart there. That was author and mental health activist Kat Kinsman speaking to us in 2018. There is a 24-hour helpline available if you'd like to talk with someone. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. But sometimes talk isn't possible. So now there's a 24-hour text line to reach out to for help as well. The Crisis Text Line. Simply text pound 741-741 to begin the conversation. You'll find the links on our website at poppytooker.com. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com. And while you're podcasting us, don't forget to rate us on your preferred platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and our new sponsor, Crystal Hot Sauce. In my kitchen, Crystal is more than just hot sauce. It's an ingredient. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>